You are listening to Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple. Related technologies and businesses, nothing is so perfect. It cannot be destroyed and picked apart by my co-host, John Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is Friday. It is April 6th, 2012. And this right here is episode number 63. I want to say thanks very much, as always, to our lovely sponsors. In no particular order, Hover.com, Shopify.com, and MailChimp.com. Tell you more about those as the show continues. We also want to say thanks very much to Joint.com for providing the bandwidth for this show. I made it. Good day, John Syracuse. I was starting to worry about you. Good day, Dan Benjamin. It was a close call, but I made it. I'm glad. That's all that counts, is that you're you're here, and you're ready. I am. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. I'm already recording. Are you ready for some car follow-up? Oh, Maybe you're yeah. not ready. No, I'm, I'm ready. Hit it. Let's do it. Cars. I, I'm going to get the car stuff out of the way. All right. First, there shouldn't be a lot of this. For the people who don't like car stuff, I, I hope this is putting this topic to bed. No more follow-up on this, please. Because right, right. you're obligated if somebody, if, if even one person writes an email to you, no, you, will, you will have to address it here. I, I usually cut it. I try to cut off after like two shows. Maybe this has gone on a little long. Like the game controller stuff, I still get feedback on that, but you just, you just got to end it after some point. Uh, I was thinking when I was looking at this, how did we even get on this topic? It was because of some throwaway thing I did at the end about Marco and his M5. So this is tangential. I don't know. Marco's show is about developers, and then I listen to that show, and then I talk about it. It's all just one big circle, the circle of life. So in the previous show, I made some mention, I can't even remember the context of this, about uh, no touching. Cars don't touch when you drive them. <laughs> yes. How in the world we got onto that, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and I immediately got a tweet from Torloff Niebunner. Sorry about that. Who nice. said, uh, and, and I said the cars don't touch except maybe in India which was a rude thing to say, probably. No complaints about that so far. Maybe it's true. Uh, but he tweeted to tell me... <laughs> it's that only rude if, it, if it's not if something they accept, right? Yeah. But he tweeted to tell me that there are actually more countries where touching cars are normal. He says, in France, when people park their cars, they go back until they touch. I don't know if this is true. French people can feel free to correct me that you're... I don't even know if this person lives in France, if he's throwing you all under the bus, so to speak, to say that when you park the cars, you go until they touch. I'm here to say that that is not the correct way to park. Don't... Don't touch your car into other people's cars. It's not right. Lucas Mathis, longtime uh, contributor, oh, feedbacker, yeah. and blogger, uh, mentioned the. Uh, I was talking about the idea of cars that make noise, particular uh, the, the BMW M5 that plays simulated, recorded sounds of an engine uh, inside the car. And he points out that some people want to drive a quiet car, and other people get confused when they can't hear the engine running. This is a relatively recent phenomenon, and I've experienced it myself, where if, you, if you're someone who grew up in the age when you could hear the engine, uh, you know, especially if you're used to a, a stick shift car and you can kind of hear the revs and know when to shift and when you're getting close, you, that's just part of the experience of driving the car. And as those people aged and they got like you know, Toyota Avalons or whatever, these cars that are as quiet as a tomb inside, one of the problems was that they had to put a, a lockout on the starter motor because people would twist the key to start the engine when it's already running, and that's very bad for, you know, so they very quickly put in a mechanism that didn't allow you to, uh, you know, to crank the starter when the, the engine is still running. Have you ever done, you ever done that, John? I have never done that. But In your whole life, you've never accidentally 
restarted the gun. I do not have any cars that are nice enough to to be so isolated from the engine that I can't hear whether it's running or not. Uh, And I also have uh, have only ever owned or driven, well, owned, only ever owned uh, stick shift cars. Uh, so you're more connected with what the engine is doing. Still, your cars are still stick shift, even even today yes. in 2012. Even even today, I'm holding on. You know, Marco's holding on not to get a minivan. I'm holding on not to get a minivan and not to get an automatic transmission car. He's probably doing the same thing. I don't know if he's ever had an automatic. Uh, but uh, Lucas points out, you know, so he's talking about that, that that is a real phenomenon that, you know, you either want to hear the car, but sometimes when you can't hear the car, that's bad. And so he says, if the only argument against it is that cars shouldn't do that, then his answer is, well, if it works, it works. As in, you know, if playing the sound in the car works to prevent all those things that cars that are too quiet uh, that happen when the car is too quiet, then go with it. And I'm not really against cars adding noise artificially to some end to make the driver aware of what it's doing or whatever. Uh, And my next point, I'll talk about some more stuff on that. But the, the thing of the M5 in particular is that, as I tried to express last time, one of the joys of driving a very fast car is the thrilling sound of the engine. Uh, and if that particular pleasure of driving a fast car goes away because like electric cars become the norm or whatever, that's fine. That's just like the natural evolution of the product product. But don't don't cheapen it by trying to simulate the old thing that has naturally evolved away. You know, I know some people will say, well, I, I like a gasoline internal combustion engine. I will never like anything else. That's fine, too. Uh, but if that's the way cars go, if they become so quiet that you can't hear the engine or they become electric cars, that you can't hear the engine. There, there are other pleasures inherent in electric cars that we should embrace, not try to simulate the old way and the thing i was thinking of as a as a analogy here is that cars didn't try to simulate the feeling of being on a galloping horse it was like it's exciting to be on a horse like by yourself going real fast you know what i mean but the cars didn't say okay we've got this car that goes really fast so can we make the seat move up and down in a rhythm like a horse no nobody did that there's different <laughs> pleasures there are pleasures to, to riding on a horse and there are pleasures to driving a car with an internal combustion engine and there are pleasures to driving an electric car and let's not try you know if we evolve the internal combustion engine car to the point where you can't hear the engine anymore and it sort of, and that's what people want. And it naturally goes out of the way, you know, becomes not part of the experience. Don't fight it. Don't play recorded engine sounds. It's it's unseemly and, and cheap. Do you know, John? Uh, and, what what do the electric cars do when they're running? The current current day modern day electric cars do when they're running on electric power. Do you know if they make a sound or if they're just fully silent? Because I've heard I've heard that there were accidents and things like slow speed accidents with pedestrians, especially because the pedestrians don't hear the car that's that's coming and the person isn't maybe paying attention. What a segue. Did you look at the show notes or no? No, I, I never look at them. So this is natural skill. So my next item here is uh, a story about Audi who is making electric cars. Everybody is. I don't know if these are real cars or just demos or whatever. Those are called e-tron, E hyphen, then Tron, like the, uh, the video game and movie. And they're doing an electric version of their R8, which is their sports car their supercar they would like to call it <laughs> and it's fully electric so it doesn't make any noise and the, and part of the thing in the video is they show like the car going through a crosswalk and what you talk about is like you know prius or whatever going through a crosswalk a prius to my knowledge the current models of prius and uh, certainly the original ones didn't didn't add any extra noise so they made whatever noise they made of like the rubber rolling against the road and the you know the wind and the gravel crunching or whatever but they didn't have anything that emitted sound uh, as far as i know and so you can see them on the road they're real quiet and they sneak up on you when you're in the crosswalk like you're used to you just if you grew up in a world with cars you're used to using your ears as well as your eyes to know when it's safe to cross and you can be startled by a car you know going through a parking lot or a crosswalk whatever and you couldn't hear it coming you know you only have your sight to rely on and that's disconcerting so all makers of electronic cars are trying to address this by having to make some sort of noise that pedestrians you don't just have to make a noise you have to make a noise that pedestrians associate with 
car is coming so that you avoid these low speed accidents or fender benders. Um, now this Audi story, this e-tron R8, it's kind of a different thing there because yeah, you want to do that. So pedestrians don't get run over, but you also, they're trying to say, well, so the sound of the internal combustion engine is gone. I don't know if that car even has one or if it does have one, it's just one of those ones that charges the batteries. It's not, it's not something you'd want to hear. That's impressive. How do we, how do we give some sort of thrill to driving? And this is kind of like a half measure with like, we don't want to have a recorded engine sound because we don't have a, a 10 cylinder engine in this car. Let's make up a new sound, kind of like Ben Burt style, where you have a sound engineer and say, come up with the sound for the TIE fighter. Come up with the sound for an X-Wing fighter. Doesn't exist. You just decide what you think would sound cool. So someone came up with a sound for the R8 that sounds to me a lot like they used to make car sound in like RoboCop and stuff, like movies from the 80s with a future car. And go, <laughs> sort of futury, but still sort of sounds like an internal combustion engine. And they, this is literally what they've made. So I encourage everyone to go to the show notes and pull up this video and listen to the sound that they've created for this Audi car. I think it's a little bit comical and probably barking up the wrong tree, but it shows that people are thinking about this. So they're totally not trying to fool you into thinking this is an internal combustion engine. But the key to it is that it's it's matched to like throttle position and stuff. So it it revs up like a car. And so even though it doesn't sound like a car, you would never identify it as an internal combustion engine car. I think it probably still triggers in people the, oh, don't step into the crosswalk because it heard an engine rev out of my you know left ear. And it could be a car barreling down the road. I thought that was very interesting. <laughs> Alex Mittbauer, who's by his name, I assume he lives in Germany, was the first person who I assume to be German who corrected me that BMWs are not built in Stuttgart. I said that uh, you want the sound of the real engine. You don't want the sound of an engine that someone recorded in Stuttgart. BMW is not made in Stuttgart. They're built in Munich. Mercedes and Porsche are built in Stuttgart, which is probably why I got that confused. Although for all we know, those BMW engine sounds were recorded in Stuttgart in some sort of test track. So I don't know. You know, I've been corrected many, many times in this, though, so we'll make it clear. BMW is not built in Stuttgart. I meant to ask Marco uh, if and when he does buy uh, uh, another, you know, he's indicated that it, he's not planning on buying the uh, the five. But I meant to ask him if he does ever make another BMW purchase, if he will drive to North Carolina to have, to have the BMW experience. Have you heard about this? I have not, but I think I know what it is. Uh, I like, I've, go down there and they teach you how to drive your new high-performance car that you got? Yeah, apparently you take delivery of your car instead of at the local dealership. You can take delivery uh, of it at the BMW. I don't, I don't believe it's a headquarters, but it's some kind of campus in, in North Carolina where you can go and pick it up. But you, you don't just go and take delivery of the car. You go there and you have this special experience where they unveil the car with a, some ceremony and then they have tracks and things like that there. And exactly as you said, John, they drive, you drive around the track and you get to take it to, you know, 150 miles per hour or whatever the ceiling is for it and all of this other stuff that, that you know, you, you get to learn uh, special driving skills and get some kind of certification. And it's a several, several day program. I don't know if you pay for it or if it's included in the cost of the car if you choose to have it uh, picked up there. It's like, a, it's like a little brisk for your car they have for you. That's exa- exactly right. Would you would do not, that if you were buying uh, a BMW? If, if I was independently wealthy and a man of leisure, yeah, hell yes, I would do that. <laughs> who, else, who wouldn't want to take a delivery of their new car in that manner? That yeah. is the luxury afforded to very few people, not just for the money, but just like who has the time to take a trip down there? <laughs> but it, that sounds awesome. Who wouldn't want that? It does sound I'd, pretty cool. I'd do that with my minivan if that was offered, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm just going to give you delivery movie. Let's see how fast it can go. Go around our track. You know, get that minivan up to 110, bounce off the rev limiter. That sounds great. And yeah. I encourage Marco to do that so we can all live vicariously through him. That's the kind of thing you think he would. That's like, to him, any other way of 
getting a car, we wouldn't really feel like he was buying it. This is all pre-baby thinking, of course. Right. right. We'll see how that goes. Uh, Shane Jace wrote in to tell me that I was mispronouncing the name of those precious notebooks that hipsters loved, which is spelled M-O-L-E-S-K-I-N-E. How do you pronounce that word? I, I will leave it to you. You're not even going to attempt it. Mm. Yeah, I didn't I spell didn't it one more time. And I'll make a, I'll make notes. M O L E S K I N E. Those kind of notebooks, those little notebooks, you know, the, the cute ones. I've heard them pronounced two ways. A moleskin, like the skin of a mole. Yes. And moleskine, which yes. I, I assume is the way that people from Syracuse would pronounce it. Yeah. So I never thought that there was an alternate pronunciation for this because it looks straightforward. And the way I said it on the show is like the skin of a mole. Mm-hmm. And the person wrote me in to say, no, 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 it's moleskine, yeah. not moleskin. Uh, so I Googled it to check and went to the website for this company, and they have a video of people saying this word in 8,000 different ways, at least two of which sound like moleskin to me. And the official company line is, you know, many moleskin users send us inquiries as to which is the correct way of pronouncing the word moleskin. The answer is, there is no predetermined answer. So thank you, company, for taking a stand on how to pronounce your name. <laughs> Although it does mean that my interpretation of moleskin is equally valid, according to the company. But yes, other people like it, moleskine. So who am I to tell them they're wrong? Apparently the company says they're right too. Yeah. We're all right. Yay. Just buy our stuff. Pretty good. All right. So that's the end of the car stuff, but we have more follow-up. Now getting more on topic. I think I've got through that pretty painlessly. So this is Ken Beagle, not spelled like a dog, wrote in to point out to me yet another instance of how Apple is disambiguating its iPad products on its website in various ways. Many people have sent these things in, and I highlighted this one because I, it's something I hadn't seen before. This is on the, the page for the smart cover. If you buy a smart cover and it says, what models of product does this smart cover fit? Uh, and it has a usage that I hadn't seen where they have, they have two little pictures at the bottom showing like little rectangles that look like iPads. And they said, this product fits. And there's the picture, there's a little picture of an iPad. Then there's the name of the product iPad 2, and that other one is a little picture, and the name of the product says iPad, right? But then underneath the product names, there's a line that says second generation and third generation. Not in parentheses and not as part of the name. It's like two separate things. The product names are iPad 2 and iPad, and then the identifiers, the the lower identifiers are second generation and third generation. Mm. So it says iPad 2 second generation. You're like, is that the second generation of the iPad? But by breaking it up onto separate lines, it's like, this is the iPad 2, and it was our second generation product, and this is the iPad, and it's our third generation product. And I think that may be a strategy that they use going forward to differentiate them, is that to put the product name, iPad 2 or iPad, you know, they've had th- two product names for three products. The first one was called iPad, the second one was called iPad 2, the third one was called iPad. But then underneath them, as a separate piece of metadata, say, first generation, second generation, third generation, which is probably better than going with year, because if they, you know, start skipping years or do whatever, generations uh, works better. So I thought that was interesting. I thank Ken Beagle for pointing that out to me. I will keep my eye on the, the generation lingo as the separate item, not as part of the name or as a parenthetical. Now, back onto the meat of what we talked about in the last show. We talked about RIM and their focus on the enterprise slash giving up, giving up on the consumers. I right. yelled a bit about once you stop trying to make a product you think customers will love and start making a product you think businesses will love. It's like surrendering. It's like saying, well, we, we know we can't make anything people would use if they had a choice, but maybe we can make something that the people who force other people to use things uh, will like. Alex K. wrote in to ask, uh, 
me to talk about the reasons why a company would want to target enterprise customers. And he says, after all, apart from Apple, it seems like the chances of making money from massive IT departments is far greater than selling to consumers. And there's some examples he gives. So he says Apple had like a 25 billion profit. I don't know whether this is quarterly or yearly. It's probably, I don't know. Does that sound like a quarterly or yearly figure? He didn't, he didn't say. But I'm assuming the time span is, is the same for all these. So he says Apple 25 billion, but Oracle made 12 billion. SAP made something in euros that I can't convert, 3.4 billion. Uh, and Microsoft made 23 billion. And, and this argument is that Microsoft's mostly selling like Windows and Office to enterprise, but certainly Oracle is, is an enterprise product. It's not selling directly to consumers, so it seems like a pretty tidy business. I still question the idea that, you know, that apart from Apple, that the way to make lots of money is, is with the enterprise. I think there are a lot of technology companies that do make big money with the enterprise, but a lot of that I think has to do with what I talked about last week, that Enterprises find it harder to change from one product to another. They have more inertia. It's easier to get them locked into very lucrative deals. Once you're, once you're solving their business problem, it's quite a disruption to their business for them to solve that business problem in a different way. And they'd rather just keep paying you money. And so you can ratchet up your fees and support and all this other stuff. You make lots of money from them. But there are way more consumers than there are businesses to sell to. And so if you're like Oracle and you can wrap up like all the really big rich businesses, that's one way to go. Uh, but the Apple way is to sell everybody a $50 iPad shuffle, you know, or a $100 iPad or now a $500 you know, or $100 iPod or a $500 iPad. But you, you make it up in volume, sort of. So I I don't know if it really is that everybody but Apple's making all the money in the enterprise. It used to be a lot of people were making money from consumers, and Microsoft, I think, probably still is. But uh, just because Apple has sort of, you know, become dominant and the other competitors have dropped the ball, I still think because there are so many more consumers that if you're in for the big money, you should be going after the consumer. And I think Apple has proven that going after the consumer, trying to make a product that the customer actually really wants, like individual people actually really want, is a great strategy simply because it makes you have better products. Uh, even if your ultimate strategy is like, let's pretend you know that Apple has some secret plan to like dominate the enterprise. I don't think they do, but let's pretend if they did. If they did, it would actually be kind of a clever strategy to say, we're going to dominate the enterprise by not focusing on them at all and simply by <laughs> making products that every, that people love because enterprises are made up of people and eventually we will win because those people will demand our products because they're so much better than everybody else's. I don't think that's their plan, but that would be a viable strategy. You know, now, Andrew in the chat room says, Oracle makes 75% of the money off government contracts. Talk about a pairing of things that are difficult to change. Government, you know, government contracts and and... The, the requirements they have of their vendors combined with a vendor that is uniquely suited to meet their needs of bureaucracy and all that other stuff. Yes, that's that's quite a marriage there uh, with money. Once you can get onto that government money train, it's, it's quite a connection. But <laughs> as someone who uses Oracle on a daily basis or it touches it, it, it is very different from an Apple product. Let me just put it that way. Oracle is not a touchy-feely, friendly, happy product that people love. Even the people who use it and it really helps them in their business i don't think there are a lot of people who love love oracle like everyone's got some sort of little complaint about it and like boy just if this one thing was different or whatever you know maybe the people who make their livings off oracle can come to love it but i know are you are you not no longer an oracle dba no i never was and my the oracle dbas i've met at work do not exude the kind of love for oracle that you might expect of someone whose job is to work with oracle Hmm. and like this is they're like you know professional dedicated oracle dbas like that's the only thing they do and they do it very well and they're very knowledgeable about it but it's not the kind of love you see for example of you know someone who like for example writes stuff about apple and also loves apple Mm -hmm. uh 
So he concludes saying everybody's getting rich off the enterprise, but only only Apple seems to profit off the consumer. I I just I see some companies making rich off the enterprise, but I don't think that's a way a way to build a company that's like I don't know. I'll get to this in the next question, but like even if you're making lots of money on those government contracts and selling to enterprises, somehow to me, and this is a personal taste thing, it f- doesn't feel as good to be making as it would be to be making the thing that individual people loved. And which one makes you more money or less money? Or I don't know what's the best strategy in the end. Obviously, Apple is the shining example of how you can succeed wildly by doing one thing. But on the other hand, there have been many other companies who have been very successful. And he gave example, Microsoft, Oracle, so on and so forth. Very successful and grown very big uh, using the other strategy. So I don't know which is the correct strategy. Or if you're starting a business, which one you should try to do. I just know which one uh, appeals to me more. And that's, I guess, my bias going into this. Uh, and that gets the, the next feedback, which is even angrier, from, from John Koch, saying that focusing on the enterprise is not a failure. Talking about, again, RIM. I was making fun of them for focusing on the enterprise and saying how they were you know, admitting defeat. Uh, so the enterprise operates in furtherance of the business. That's the complete opposite of the iPhone's intentions. The iPhone is a me device, and the BlackBerry is a we device. So I, already, first paragraph in, I'm like, oh, mm, <laughs> you know, is it a me device, you know? Uh, but but then but he has good points here. But he says both companies started at opposite ends and have stumbled toward the center. Well, that they definitely did. Well, I don't know. Apple definitely started at one far end. They were totally consumer. But Rim didn't start at the far end of focusing on the enterprise. Like I guess that was one of their strengths. But people really loved their Blackberries. Like they would the new BlackBerry Curve or whatever would come out in the pre-iPhone days, and people were excited about that. Individual people who didn't have to buy it for work are just like, I'm going to get the new BlackBerry. It's going to be awesome. Like they were kind of a consumer company too. People loved their Blackberries. Uh, I guess they did focus on their sales efforts. I'm like, if we get into the enterprise, you know, that's the way we'll, you know, give the high-powered executives their phones and then everyone will want them. So, uh, I, I don't know. Then maybe they did go towards the same thing. Uh, but he goes on, enterprise end users want the phone because they want to do fun thing, fun iPhone things on their work phones. This probably has something to do with the fact that a lot of these fun things are restricted on their corporate desktops, but if they had iPhones, then they could tweet about how they had a cheeseburger at lunch. He says, I maintain there is no difference between a BlackBerry and an iPhone properly secured for a serious enterprise. So, like, you got your BlackBerry, and he's saying this: the BlackBerry suddenly becomes no different than the iPhone once you make it conform to, to the enterprise specifications. So that means no camera, disable the camera, no third-party app installation. That means no Twitter or Facebook or anything like that. No personal email accounts, no web browsing, and no media. That's like the lockdown phone. So he says, once you lock down an iPhone in that manner... It's basically the same as a BlackBerry. I don't even think that's true, but I think just getting your corporate email or doing whatever you're allowed to do on your corporate phone is still more pleasurable on an iPhone than, than on a BlackBerry, simply because, well, I don't know, maybe... The How Harvard do you think keeps... he, fa- he factors pleasure into his equation? Yes, yes, that's, that's, uh, that's a question here. And, and he says, well, why shouldn't they lock the phones down? No company wants its data accessed and uploaded by some app. See path. Enterprise asks questions like, is allowing third-party apps going to increase productivity? And then he answers it, no. Is putting a company data at risk? Yes. You see where this is going. It says, ask any corporate drone what the iPhone does that a BlackBerry does not. And I'll bet you get a response that has nothing to do with business productivity. So you can kind of see the, the perspective he's coming from. So he concludes saying, the company that is paying for the device and the service plan is entitled to dictate the terms, not the other way around. This is a this false sense of entitlement that people... To, that people have to use eye devices at work is laughable. Do you, and you disagree with this? This is a, a, a common perspective. Uh, it's just, and I, there is some validity to what he's saying. Like, if you're trying to think about like, why 
do, do our do our employees just want this thing to play Angry Birds on and to look at Facebook and stuff like that? Uh, but as you already got to, as far as I'm concerned, happiness is not a frill. You know, happy employees are good for business. Right. It's the it's the employer's responsibility to do more than just provide them with the the simple tool that they need to do their job. It's it should be their responsibility to to if the, if possible help them enjoy their jobs. Yeah, and not for like oh, out, completely ultra. Look, look at it completely cynically and say, look, happy employees are better employees. They yeah. will be more productive. They will do better work. They literally will. You can look at it a hundred percent. Scrooge McDuck. Well, Scrooge McDuck was not bad. Ebenezer Scrooge, cynical kind of way. How do we get the most <laughs> out of our employees? You need to give them a break room. You need to give them sunlight. You need to give them you know benefits and security and and, and happiness. And one of those things is giving them uh, tools that they use to do their job that make them happy. Right. And if you have employees who are spending all the day on Facebook, you've got a problem beyond, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's the phones that's making them like that. Your employees should feel like they want to do their work and not goof a whole day on Facebook. That's a separate problem. You shouldn't have to say, well, all of our employees would spend all day on Facebook and Twitter if we gave them cool phones. That's not who wants to run that business, who wants to be in that business. And, and as for IT versus, you know, IT supporting employees versus IT's dictating to employees, I think that I've already said, I think that's definitely shifting from the old way of IT tells you exactly what to do to them being in a support function where they say, okay, employees, what do you need to do to get your job done and be happy? And I, as an IT department, will support you in that endeavor to the best of our ability. Uh, and I think employees are voting with their, not with their wallets, but with their feet. Like you, people don't want to go work for a company where you can't have internet access. They can't look at the web during my job. I mean, that's a non-starter for anyone doing programming, but almost any job, you know, it, and maybe obviously if you're a cashier at a supermarket, you maybe you shouldn't be looking at the internet all day because you should be ch- ringing people out. But like that's a problem that solves itself by you have to do your job. But if you have a type of job where you're sitting at a desk or whatever, I don't think you should be, you know, people aren't going to go work for the company that's like that. The company that this guy might work for that has these requirements. I mean, maybe if you're a military contractor or you're you're in some some, some sort of important business where really that is a distraction. Like I think it just falls out naturally from the type of business you're in. But in the sort of day-to-day Office Space, what was the name of that company, Office Space? Inatech. Inatech, yeah, that type of company. Like, that's that's not life and death in that company. There's no reason to make people miserable. Uh, I think this balance is shifting. Uh, I see it in my actual work life and, and companies of various sizes, and I think it's shifting for a good reason. Not because it's like hippy-dippy, everyone's got to be happy, don't hurt anyone's feelings, but simply because people are realizing this, the same way that people are realizing that by making products for consumers, you can be this, this massive success because if you make stuff that people want, you can even actually get into the enterprise. People are realizing, I think they've always realized, make your employees happy. Hire people who are who are going, you make them happy and their reward is that, your reward is that they will work hard for you. They will value you as an employer. They will want to, they won't want to goof off all day on Facebook. They'll want to do their job. That's the kind of person you want to hire and that's the kind of company you want to have. Let's do our first sponsor because I have no idea if this follow-up is ever going to end. Yeah, it's like that. Hover.com. That's it. I don't know if do I need to say anything else? Okay, I will. Uh, these guys are great. They simplify the entire process of registering a domain name. That's what they're all about. That's the thing. It all starts with a search. You go to hover.com. Well, actually, you go to hover.com slash Dan sent me and you get 10% off, but I'll get to that. You go to hover.com. There's a little blank right there, a little box. You type whatever it is you're thinking of. Maybe it's your first and last name. Maybe it's your last name. Maybe it's an idea you have for a business. You type it into that box and you hit search. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to tell you, is that domain name available? If it's not, 
However, we'll come up with a whole bunch of alternatives that maybe you never even thought of. And not stupid ones like just inserting every random adjective in front of They'll actually be good. They'll be useful. They'll be cool domain names. It'll show you if they're available or not. It'll tell you how much they cost to register. Now, you have a domain somewhere else. You want to move it over to Hover because you want the simplicity. They make that process really easy. Human beings can be involved if you want them to be. That's the biggest frustration that I've had with so many other domain name registrars. As, as good as they try to make their experience, you know, and here, here you are, John, you're talking about the humanity, the humanity of... Uh, of, of the iPhone compared to the BlackBerry and the humanity of the experience. Where, that's what Hover's all about. They, there are regular real people there who will help you. I bet they use iPhones. And they will, they will help you if you have a problem. They make it all easy. They make it all painless. And there are tons of really great plans, too. Uh, they have advanced DNS services built into this. They have email hosting built into this so that you can go and register your domain and you don't need to, oh, well, now I got to go find some other company to do DNS. got to find some other company. To, they do it all and they, it, they carry that elegance and simplicity and straightforward attitude across all of these services. So you should check them out. Here's what you do. Hover.com slash Dan sent me one word, or just use the coupon code Dan sent me, and that'll get you 10% off. So go check it out. Hover. Little hummingbird. People in the chat room are having their own show as usual. Uh, yeah, I can't go in there anymore. It's too much negativity. And I've been pretty good today. A Richard says free air with an asterisk next to it for earners as a parody of the company strategy of like free air for everyone. As long as you earn. <laughs> And KJ Healy says, air is off the table. However, we meet workers more than halfway. 71% of the way, in fact, by providing them with as much nitrogen as they need. That was a science joke. Good job, KJ Healy. I hope you got that percentage right, because if not, now I'm going to get feedback of uh, people correcting me. The actual percentage of nitrogen in air. So one more follow-up. Uh, still on the enterprise thing, because I got a lot of email about this. This is in order of increasing anger at me. Well, this is a disappointment, really. That's, that's one of the things I got. They're very disappointed in me. So uh, Jonas... <laughs> Stawowski? Something like that. Kowal- uh, Kowalski. S-T-A-W-S-K-I. Okay. It's very disappointed. He says, as you were talking about RIM, focusing on the enterprise and laughing at the same time, it made me realize that you're not that open-minded after all. It revealed your closed vision on, that the only way to approach a problem is the Apple or Steve Jobs way. My, my take on that in terms of open-mindedness is that it's not, it's not like I'm saying that the Apple or Steve Jobs way is the only way. It's that RIM used to make products that people loved. I didn't choose that to be RIM's business. It's not like I'm going to SAP and saying you need to make consumer products that people love SAP because that's the only way forward. That's the only way to do business. RIM used to be like that. They, RIM used to be the Apple of the smartphone world. They practically defined the segment. You know, every, everyone wanted to be like them. They had the best-selling products. Everyone agreed they were the best, you know. Windows Phone wasn't able, they were, they were going against Microsoft and say, well, you know, Windows Phone, but I really like my BlackBerry better, right? And by focus on the enterprise, uh, as others have written, it seems like giving up on that original goal. Like, we, they were the Apple, and now they say, well, well, I guess we can't be the Apple. It's not, it's not me who's telling them that you have to do things the Apple way. That's, that was their business. And turning away from that, yes, I see as a kind of failure. If you were successful in, in this particular way, and you just couldn't cut it and you couldn't, you know, your competitors just beat you. They have better phones, you know, and then nobody wanted your phones anymore. And you say, okay, now we're going to focus on something that's very different than that. I see that as some kind of failure. He continues, your arrogant laughs and comments are based on what might be wrong assumptions. What might be wrong assumptions? What makes you think they'll continue to sell phones? That's actually a good point. Uh, it does get back to my first point. 
But then, like, you're right. Maybe they're not even going to sell phones anymore. When they say they're going to focus on the enterprise, maybe they're going to do something different. And he says, you know, maybe they'll become a services company like what IBM did years ago. They could do that, even if they do that. Even if RIM turns into an enterprise services company like IBM, and IBM really is a great example because they used to be the guys who made your PCs and stuff, and now they are totally a services company. Uh, I would still see that as a kind of a failure. Like, that business didn't work out. We couldn't compete in it, so we go to a different one. It may be a successful business strategy, like it's a good pivot, as they say in the startup world, where you're, the business finds a way to continue and to be a successful business. That's great and all, but it still means that they couldn't compete with Apple in the smartphone business. They got beaten their own game. They got dethroned, you know, and, and they had to go off and do something else. And I, I think I would call that a failure. And I think I would call that giving up on that particular thing. Um, and if they become a successful enterprise services company, it may be better for RIM's shareholders, may or may not be better for the current employees of RIM. That's the other thing. When you change into a services company, suddenly you need a different kind of staffing, and that's kind of a bummer for the people who were there making awesome phones and stuff like that, kind of like all the people who made like WebOS, very talented people who made a, a pretty amazing operating system. But once you decide, oh, we're not going to do that anymore, those people are going to be bummed out and probably looking for new jobs voluntarily or involuntarily, you know. Uh, he goes on, there are many ways to measure success, and I know many companies that are successful and are nowhere near as big and as profitable as RIM, Apple, Google, etc. That's true. RIM may still go on to be a successful company doing something else. It's possible they could come back and become a successful smartphone company. I mean, just look at Apple if you need any example. Like, well, Apple's lost. They, they're they going to be out of the PC business. They're totally dead. Their market share is dwindling. Nobody wants Macs. It's ridiculous. They're dead meat. Uh, Apple did go and do something different with the music players and the phones and stuff like that, but they also came back in the PC segment. So who would have thought that Apple would be selling as many Macs now, you know, if you asked in 1997. So it's possible the RIM could come back from that too. I just think it's very unlikely. Uh, it was very unlikely when Apple did it. It was probably the most unlikely thing that has ever happened in the business world in my lifetime. Uh, so he says, peeking outside your circles might expose you to a whole different world. I recommend it. I definitely have lots of contact with enterprise services and companies like Oracle and SAP and IBM in their actual capacities as consultants to businesses. Maybe that has turned me off to them being mm. in companies that have consultants from IBM and Oracle and stuff coming in. Like it's a way to do business. It doesn't, he's right that there, I do have a personal bias against that, that I prefer the other way. I would want to be, have a company more like the Apple or the old, the rim of old than to have a company like Oracle, as much as I may respect, you know, the, what, what it is they do. But I just, that, you know, that's not the kind of company I would really want to work for. And that's not the kind of company that I would want to run. But that's just me. Uh, but this is all aside from the fact that I was saying Rim is giving up and laughing at them because I think they were, they were like Apple. It wasn't, it's not me putting in that place. They were the Apple, the smartphone business, and they got beat out by the real Apple. And they're kind of like, instead of saying we're going to redouble our efforts, palm style and say, Right, we had the PDAs and we kind of had these trio phones which people kind of like but kind of didn't. Well, we're going to come back with both barrels. We're doubling down. We're going to go with the WebOS phone. And I was really impressed with what Palm did. Of course, it didn't work, but that was the strategy they used. So maybe Rim has learned from Palm and say, look, we're never going to be able to make a good phone. Look at Palm. They, that's the best shot they ever had. They got a bunch of Apple people. They got an Apple guy to run the whole company. Uh, that you know, and and they made a pretty good phone, but they still didn't make it and got ate up by HP and everything fizzled. So maybe it is a smart business move for them to do what they're doing. I just, maybe, maybe it was rude for me to laugh at them. I still think it's a, 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 a sad day and admission of defeat, even if they go on to be successful in some other way. Oh, and the letter concludes by saying, by the way, I'm not a BlackBerry user. I think their products are outdated and they weren't able to innovate when needed. I agree. So why are you yelling at me about saying they had a failure? Did. 
And there we go. Follow up. Enterprise follow up. That's it for the follow up. It's pretty good, huh? 35 minutes and not bad. Yeah. I'm all amped up from PAX. That's what's happening. How is PAX? Crowded, but I can't tell if it was less crowded than normal because I got there really early this time. So I was farther up in the line. But maybe it is less. It is Easter weekend that they had the scheduling snafu where Mm. they ended up scheduling it over Easter, probably because that's the only time the convention center was available. And I think they rent out the convention center on like some sort of 12-year contract or something going forward, I guess, so they don't have to ever do this again. Uh, but still lots of people. Lots and lots of people, not all of whom were dressed as elves or Mario, but many of them were. So my topics for today. Uh, I've got two here. I've got readability, which, believe it or not, I do want to talk about. I know you probably talked about that a lot, but I'm a little bit behind on podcasts, so I haven't heard everything you've talked about them. And from last week, Will Shipley's Mac App Store blog. Hmm. Yeah, because we didn't get to that. Yeah. We need to. Yes, we will. What do you want to do first? Readability? Yeah, let's, least, let's clear that out. It'll be a shorter one. Uh, how, have you talked about readability like crazy on past shows? Uh, we talked about it the most, I think. Uh, I think it was with John Gruber on uh, this week's talk show. I think it was the... The, yeah, I heard the most discuss the most discussion we had about it. But that, I mean, which, don't let that stop you. People love want to hear yeah, your yeah. opinion. Which is apt. So if the quick recap is that readability is a service. Oh, I don't. I can't even can't even quickly recap readability's business plans. Uh, but they will. It started out as kind of like a bookmark that they would reformat the page you're looking at to make it more readable. Take away all the ads and stuff. Well, I don't know if take away all the ads, but anyway, reformat it and reflow the text to make it more readable in your browser. Uh, and I don't know how many iterations of business plan it's gone through but now what they're doing is kind of like an instant paper type thing where you save this thing for later and oh so save this page for reading later kind of like instant paper does and then later you go back and you read it through the instant paper interface which is minimal and just reformats the column with text and it removes all the other extraneous stuff and it's a nice reading experience for you and their business plan was that uh you pay some sort of i don't even know what the plan is but you you give readability some sort of money and they distribute some portion of that to the owners of the site's Whose things that you're reading, and it's like, what is it like a seventy percent cut goes to the site? So yeah, they, seven, 70 to the site, thirty kept by uh, by readability, right? Uh, and there was a big kerfuffle about this recently because John Gruber called them scumbags on his blog, and you talked about. I did hear that talk show. You talked about that particularly about the word scumbag and stuff like that. Uh, and for some reason, I did it myself. Marco and Instapaper keep getting pulled into this simply because he makes a product that does something similar and kind of define the segment for products that do this read it later type of service. Uh, and he had a past relationship with readability when they were in a different business. Uh, so now they are going, going squarely at the model that, that Marco had, but their business model is very different. In Marco's business model, you pay money to Apple basically, and Apple gives him a cut of that money. And you're basically paying him for his application. And once you get the application, no more money is flying around through Marco's Instapaper universe while you're reading stuff. Right. Uh, and it's definitely the type of thing where we're Instapaper, at least in my usage of it, where you go to the web page in your web browser device and then you click a button that says, oh, I'm going to read this later. At that point, you've already loaded the page and all the ads and everything. So that's always felt like a cleaner experience to me where, look, you, you've loaded the page. You've loaded all their ads. You've looked at assuming you're not using an ad blocker or anything. They got your view ad. You just don't have time to finish the entire article now. So you hit the read, you know, the Instapaper button, and then it stores off the text in Instapaper, and later you can look at Instapaper when you're on the subway and you're out of Wi-Fi range because it's downloaded the content for you and it reformats it and blah, blah, blah. Obviously, I'm friends with Marco. I'm a big Instapaper user. I like it. Readability entering his business 
that's I don't think that that's the thing people jump on like oh you're friends with Marco of course you're going to say the readability is bad because now they're entering the business of a, of a competitor I don't I don't think that's what people are upset about I think that's kind of a straw man what people are upset about and why John Gruber called them scumbags is that they will accept money and solicit money saying that they are taking money on behalf of the websites that you love when in actuality they may have no business relationship with those websites. Well, so they, and in not, not in actuality, they may not. Typically they don't. Typically they, it, they, because it's not like they're getting permission to do this. This is, this is exactly the problem. They, they haven't gone, per, gotten permission. Let's say you launch your, what do you have a blog, right? I do. They could start collecting on your behalf today. They, in fact, maybe they, they already, already are. Yeah. yeah. And you, you have no idea that they are already collecting money for it. Uh, and in fact, you would have no way to ever know unless you went out there, went to their site, signed up, and then uh, you need to wait because they don't, uh, they don't actually send you the money until you reach a certain amount. But my understanding is unless you go and claim it, that you'll never get that money. Am I, am I wrong in that understanding? That's my understanding as well. And like, I mean, the first step is know that readability exists. Like that's step zero right. in this process. So maybe there, you know, I'm sure there are websites out there that have no idea that something called readability even exists and is collecting money supposedly on their behalf. And that they this has been something that's gone on for a while. Re, more recently, they did a thing where they uh, would show the con- would provide links to content, but not link it back to the original website, link it to their own website. And that was, I think, what prompted uh, Gruber to do that blog post and saying this is just another move that's very similar to right. you know. So this is not a new development. This has been their business model kind of the whole way. Uh, and the reason I wanted to talk about that is not to sort of go over the same things that other people have said about uh, them taking money on behalf of of people who don't know that, you know, they, them sort of saying, I'm the representative for Ars Technica in this matter. And if you give me money, uh, I'll give 70 percent of it to them. And, you know, for, and then Ars Technica has absolutely no relationship with them and no idea that they're and there's always the question of like, well, what if Ars Technica never claims that money? Say, well, after a year, we just keep it. And that seems disingenuous of them to be telling readers, use readability. It gives money to the people you like, to these sites that you like, and we take a cut. Uh, when really they might not be money, might not be getting to them. But my my take is to set all of that aside, especially the word scumbag, because as far as I know, there is no strict definition for the word scumbag. Everyone's upset about him using that word. What does that even mean? There's no definition. He's not actually a, a you know, a sack containing scum from a pond. <laughs> He's like, he's not a scumbag. Well, who wants a scumbag? You, you know, it's not, there is no, you can't argue about whether someone is or isn't a scumbag. You can only argue about the, uh, why it is. You could argue about why you use that term, whether it's polite to use that term or whatever, but I'll leave that to Gruber. That's not what I'm talking about. But setting all that aside, even setting aside the thing of like pre-existing business relationships, because this is what's happening I hear in a lot of the discussions and read is that they're saying, okay, well, what if readability, you know, it's bargaining. What if readability only accepted money if they had an existing business relationship or what if readability did this you know how, how they sort of altered their business model to make sure that they're never collecting money on someone's behalf like no we can't accept the money because we don't actually have a relationship with Macworld. so i know you want to give us money a portion of which will go to Macworld, but we can't do that because we have no relationship with Macworld. so we feel that would be dishonest even i've heard people say well maybe they don't have a relationship with Macworld, but if someone gives money how about distributing the money proportionally to all of the people that they read that you do have a relationship with. I still think that's bad because like, wait, wait a second, wasn't that Macworld's money? Why are you giving it to some other thing just because you happen to have a, a business relationship with that? Uh, my thing is, even if you settled all those to everybody's satisfaction, like everyone is satisfied that they're not collecting money on people's behalf unless there's an existing relationship that, that the publishers are, 
are happy with it and stuff like that. That, that all the, the the T's are crosses and the I, and the I's are dotted. I still, and I don't think this makes them bad people or certainly not scumbags or anything like that. I don't like the idea of that kind of business business model be, uh, because, in my view, they're adding a middleman, and I don't like it when middlemen get added. Most people like it when middlemen get removed because, in theory, that you know reduces prices and, and makes the relationship between the producer and the consumer more direct and stuff like that. So at, at the minimum, I would like to see a existing middleman replaced with a better one. Like, for example, Netflix replacing the cable company or whatever. You know, like, you're not removing middlemen. You're just trading one middleman for another. And, and you may like that because the existing middleman is an incumbent and almost a monopoly and, and really is just not serving the customer as well. And the new middleman will be hungry and feisty and do something better for you, right? So I either want to see middlemen removed uh, as in, I guess you could say maybe the case of, I don't know, what we can think of a middleman removal case where you, I guess Amazon is kind of like that, where you, the retailer, like, well, that's not really wholesale. I don't know. You, when middlemen are removed, that's good. And people tend to like that or replaced with the hungry middleman. But here's a situation where you have someone who's reading a web page and you have the, the consumer who's the person sitting in front of the screen reading and you have the producer like, you know, New York Times or Ars Technica or whoever producing content and there's a relationship between them there and somehow money either money changes hands or they get shown ads or like our second you can subscribe new york times you can subscribe there's also ad type of thing and here's readability saying i would like to insert myself as a middleman in this relationship they're adding a new layer of middlemen and, and they're adding it in a way that i would imagine publishers wouldn't like because what they're saying is you website uh, you know macworld.com new york com, you have a product and people consume it but we think the customers probably don't like your product because it's got too many ads or because the, the design is not nice or whatever. We think your site is ugly. And we think by pressing this little readability button or, or Instapaper or anything for that matter, we're going to reformat your site so that customers like it better. Because obviously you're not able to do that on your own for whatever reasons because it doesn't support your business model or whatever. We're going we're gonna to make your site look better. So right away you're starting off on the wrong foot with the, with the publishers are saying there is a problem with your product that we are solving. And most companies don't like it. You can think of Apple, you know, most companies don't like it when your business is based on a perceived problem in their business that, that you are solving on behalf of the customers because, you know, you're not satisfying your customers. So here comes readability and we're going to satisfy your customers with this better experience, right? That's just, you know, capitalism and competition, but right, but it does get things off on the wrong foot. Uh, and then they're saying, uh, and by the way, we're, we would like to get in on that money stream too. So instead of you getting money directly from customers with a subscription or something like New York Times or the Ars Technica Premier subscription, and we don't like that advertising model either, we'll take money on your behalf. We'll take a cut for, for the service we're providing because we are, after all, improving your product, your crappy website that no one likes to look at. We're making it better, and we think we deserve a cut of money for that. So we're going to collect money, and we're going to take a cut, and we're going to insert ourselves as a middleman in your business. I don't like any business that adds a middleman as a consumer or as a producer. Now, it, you know, it doesn't mean that there aren't real issues being addressed. People do like a better reading environment, and this is a symptom of websites that are overrun with ads and stuff like that. But I would like that problem to be solved by the websites figuring out uh, maybe we don't need to, you know, put a million ads. Like a good example is the Loop uh, Downripple site. Right. That used to be festooned with ads, including pop-up ads and stuff like that. His solution wasn't like the solution wasn't readability swoops in totally reskins his site, lets people read his stuff without ads, and then takes a cut of his money. His solution was he redesigned his site to be more pleasing to customers. That's that's what I want. It didn't add a new middleman. So now if you're, you know, there's no new party between me and him intercepting some cut of his money for the service they provided. Uh, 
customer didn't like lots of ads or he didn't like lots of ads or whoever did. And he redesigned his site to try to find a balance between advertising and, and giving the customers what they want and stuff like that. Uh, so it, no matter how awesome readability it is, and no matter, no matter how great their their solution to real problems are or how their relationships with, with the publishers or whatever, uh, I don't like it when middlemen get added. And I think everyone in the business is also wary of middlemen getting added because they're like, geez, look what happened with uh, iTunes is kind of an example where the, the record companies, so they always had some middleman, but like in, some new middleman came, you become dependent on the middleman. Like say readability becomes super duper popular. All of a sudden, like anyone who wants to get any customers or get any money has to go through readability. I'm sure that's what readability would, would be good for readability from a business perspective, but I don't, I don't like that idea. I would rather see the products get better in response to consumer demands. I would not like to see a, a, another company come in and try to be a middleman and solve that problem. Even though like, you know, that's those are noble intentions. Like the, I, we notice a problem on the web that people don't like reading these sites because they're ugly and they try to fix it. But I just, I just don't like the notion of a middleman. And I haven't heard that brought up. I've heard much more about like how readability can have better relationship with customers or be more fair with the money or be more open and obvious. I just, I just don't like a middleman period. So it's not like I say they're not scumbags for doing this or anything like that. Just my personal preference is I do not want another company coming between me and something that I was consuming, even if they're improving it, even if they're providing a service, even if they are making it better, just because I feel like that adds another layer and of complexity. I would much rather have them, you know, pull something like the loop did and just redesign their site to be better. Cause I feel that's a, I don't know. I, I maybe I'm being irrational and maybe you can, maybe people write in with all sorts of examples of how, well, you love Netflix and aren't they a middleman or whatever, but it just doesn't, it just doesn't feel right. Well, I think the difference and, and it's worth mentioning in, between something like Netflix and just kind of furthering your, your point, yes, Netflix is a middleman, but there's almost no relationship between a consumer and the motion picture studio that, that distributed the movie. There has to be a middleman, and there has always been a middleman. And now, in this case, you have a middleman where there wasn't one before, and yeah. it sounds like you're saying, nor should there be, there doesn't need to be. Yeah, I mean, there doesn't need to be one between the motion picture studios because they didn't have their heads up their butts. Well, I mean, no, if they if they had, you know, been smart, they could have been, hey, we can send movies directly to customers over the internet. We don't need any no, distributors or movie theater chains, but they didn't, you know. You know I, but but lo long ago when motion pictures first began, there yeah, was no the, the guys making the movie, uh, there was you who went to see the movie, and there was the place that you had to go that met those two things. And yeah. th this is just an extension of that. Whereas on the web, it's like, hey, I have a site. I publish stuff on that site. You, uh, with your web browser, can see it. And the whole beauty of that relationship was that there was no middleman. You have applications like Readability, like Instapaper, etc., that are creating a different experience and providing you with that content in a slightly different way. So they become a middleman. Do you feel the same way about Instapaper then, or do you like Instapaper? Yeah, in, in, Instapaper is here's the difference with Instapaper. Instapaper is kind of adding middleman to it. It's doing exactly the same thing. So people don't want to ignoring the offline stuff, which is kind of like the motivation for it even exists. Thing. Like, look, I can't get the internet when I'm on the subway. I need stuff to read. I need to save it for later. But it, the, the key difference for me with Instapaper is, you know, even though it's doing the same thing, your site is ugly. I can make it look better in my app. Let me do that. And I'm coming in the middle is that he collects a one time fee for his application. He's selling a piece of software. It's not like he's saying, and now I get a cut of your revenue forever. And now, now I want a slice of your business. All these sites that people read, I want a slice of your business. He's not even engaging in any side of business relationship with these people. 
He gets money for the app. He gives the people the app. That's the end of his business relationship with the, you know, with, with the people, except for a subscription type thing. But like he, he doesn't have a business relationship with publishers. He's not working on behalf of publishers or trying to get in the middle of people who publish content, like monetarily in the middle of people who publish content. Now, it still is a symptom, I would say, of your site if people can't even look at it unless they use Instapaper. But I really think of Instapaper as a thing to read stuff later. I'm already looking at the web page. I've already loaded the, the website. I've already loaded whatever ads they're doing. Or if I can see the website at all, for example, if you have a subscription to a website that shows you something that you can't see unless you paid, uh, that's that was the beauty of Instapaper actually sending the content is that Look, I pay for this website. I pay New York Times or whatever to see this thing or whatever site I pay. I can't, I've already entered this relationship. I go to that page. I hit the Instapaper button. It saves it for me. But the only reason it could even save it for me is because I'm currently looking at the page, which I paid for, right? Like that, it's not getting in the middle of that relationship at all. Uh, it's not, I just don't see it as a business middleman. It's more of a technology middleman. And I think as Gruber said in his show, he sees it kind of like a web browser. Like, oh, this Chrome is getting in the middle of that relationship between me and New York Times because it's rendering pages differently. Right. And, and it thinks it can it can provide better experiences by by rendering pages in a different way or, you know, what, like it's a software product. You know, you don't even pay for Chrome, but Chrome browsers, Instapaper, we see as like a, a software product that you buy that lets you view the web like or net, net newswire net newswire is not getting in between the people uh, getting monetarily between like the sites you're reading and net newswire and it totally reformats it. like you're looking at a view of the web that doesn't even look like the web until you load the web pages you know or there, there are ads in the, the you know the rss streams and stuff like that it's an application and that i feel is not it's i guess the difference between adding a business middleman and a technology middleman because everything in technology is a middleman everything in technology is some sort of intermediary layer you know through which you do things. what software application do you use to view this stuff and i think it's great that you can view twitter through 20 different applications and view the web through lots of different applications but it's different than naming a business middleman where you say you have a business i want a piece of that and i'm going to get a piece of that by saying well you're crappy at this so i'm going to do this different thing and uh and that's all i would much rather see it, don't don't let a middleman come in and do that to you. Figure out what thing that middleman is providing, a better reading experience, and provide that directly to your users, like like the loop did. This is all just a giant ad for the loop, you realize. <laughs> I'm sure he'll, Jim will be thrilled. I, I was very thrilled with that site redesign. I think everybody was. Well, speaking of a big giant ads, let's do one. Our second sponsor, MailChimp. These guys have been helping us out as, a, as an advertiser, as a sponsor, pretty much since day one. Uh, they have just released a brand new version of their site version seven. And along with that, they've spent a lot of time uh, talking to their users and, and doing test groups and watching how people use the template system that they built and the campaign interface that they built, which are two of the things that you interact with the most. And they're always refining them. They're always making them better. And uh, version seven, there's a whole new implementation of these two systems. And it, it's something that I've been using MailChimp for years and years, way before there was a five by five. And to see this evolution and this reinvention of, of the way it works is great. If you haven't tried MailChimp uh, yet at all, or if you have tried them and you haven't been there for a little while, come back and check out this new version seven. It, it, it It's really, really great. Um, meanwhile, they also came out with something called Mandrel. So if you're a software developer and you're building an application that needs to send emails, that needs an SMTP server, and you've tried some of the other ones, uh, th- this is this is just awesome. Uh, they just came out with a Rails Jam for it too, which is awesome. But they've got a really really great powerful API Mandrel. So this lets you send uh, emails right from 
within, and I'm not talking about newsletter emails. I'm saying just if you have an app that needs to send email through SMTP, check that out. They added 24 new templates for, for version seven. They've got a sports thing. They've got holidays like Easter. They got Passover in there, John. So it, it it's great. You need to go check these guys out. MailChimp.com. There's never been a better time to get started. You're I captain was, of your bowling team, right? I I don't even know what that is. that a euphemism? No. I don't have a bowling team, and if I did, I would not be its captain. No. Okay. I thought I was done with the readability topic, but apparently I'm not. Because <laughs> I looked in the chat room and I saw some more. Oh boy. Things that are yeah, that are worth But this is about. a topic. This is not follow up, so it's all right. Yes, that's right. Everything that's okay then. Uh one of the things that was pointed out that I was thinking of and I must have skipped over was if you're in an application like a Twitter app or whatever, and you see a link to something, most applications, uh, you can just tap on the link or hold down the link if you're on iOS or whatever, and it'll say, instead of opening this in a web browser or opening it within the application, you can say, uh, save this for reading later using a variety of services, uh, one of which is Instapaper. And I've always said that this is one of the key competitive advantages of Instapaper, is that so many applications have integration with it. So almost any Twitter client you find will have some sort of read it later type thing. And one of the first things they supported was in, sometimes it was just Instapaper. It was like, save this for reading later in Instapaper. Now that are competitors, maybe they support the competitors as well. But that integration is very important. But in that case, you're not actually ever loading the website. You're telling Instapaper to save this URL for reading later. And then when you go to the Instapaper website, it's like a bookmarking service at that point. Like it doesn't, I wish, by the way, I wish more clients did this. If any, if, if Craig Hockenberry is listening, it would be awesome if you could work with Marco to get the Twitter client to send the content of the web page to the Instapaper service in the normal way that it does rather than just sending the URL kind of like it's, you know, delicious or some sort of bookmarking service. So anyway, at that point, you haven't viewed their page, you haven't viewed their ads. And then if I go like to you, I like how you say, if Craig Hockenberry's listening. That's all he, he does is listen to these shows. He's a busy man. He's fighting with core data models, you know, stuff that's totally broken. It's all for show. That's all for sure. So his bosses don't think he's dorking around listening to this. So, so anyway, at that point, you haven't viewed their ads or done any of that other stuff. It's not the regular web experience. Uh, and then when you go to instapaper.com, it shows, oh, you bookmarked this, and maybe it saves like the title and then the URL. And then if you click on it, instapaper.com, you can either see the real web page or you can also see the text version, at which point instapaper will grab the content of that page, reformat it, blah, blah, blah. And I don't think instapaper actually removes all ads. If the ads are in the flow of the text, I think it still shows them because it shows images and stuff. I don't know. That's a question for Marco. Uh, but but it is, uh, you know, issues like aren't they... Isn't that it, you're not? It's not trying to be a business middleman. Like they're not taking a cut of the money and saying, "You give us some money, and we'll give a cut of it to these companies or whatever, anything like that." But you, the sites might say, "What you're doing is making it impossible or harder for me to make money because I depend on ad views to make money." And if you are showing the content from my site without the associated ads, then you're hurting my business. And this isn't an Instapaper thing. This is an age-old thing, like from the the day you know Firefox first got got its first extension or had an extension mechanism or even before that things that block ads in web browsers like and people would say well don't i have a right to you know use a software product that lets me view the web but removes the ads that i don't want to see and the sites would say oh you can't see our site unless you see our ads because that's how we make money and the customers would say well you're not the boss of me and i have a software product that lets me view the web and who's to say what the correct way to view the web is the whole point of the web is there's you know all web pages don't have to look the same there is no it's not a magazine it's not a pdf it's not a painting it's not a giant image except for in the mid 90s uh, it's we should be able to reinterpret the page and if we decide to remove everything that we think looks like an ad 
that's something that you as a business have to work around. And that's been a tension forever. The whole ad blocking thing is that can a software product decide to disrupt your business model because of the way the software product works? Like you provide content, but you, but you want to get paid for it with ad views. But then there's people who use the software cut out all your ads. That, that is an adversarial relationship and it is a problem. But I think the solution to that is that those two parties need to figure out how it's going to work. Now, thus far, I've actually been surprised by this. Thus far, it's still probably a vanishingly small percentage of the, of the customers in the world who do run ad blocking software, mostly obviously geeks and stuff like that. Uh, and some of them feel guilty for it. Some of the geeks who know how to use ad blocking software don't use it because they realize that the sites that they love aren't going to be around anymore if they don't view ads. But on the other, on the other side of the equation, these sites that people love have been finding new and different ways to make money. Just like, can we make money in a way that doesn't piss off our customers? Because like, you know, like for example, Ars Technic with the premier subscriptions. So like, look, you know, if, if that's, if you get offended by seeing ads on Ars Technica because you don't want to see all these stupid ads in your face and they're blinking and they're annoying, you don't want to care anything to do with them. There's another way for you to help us stay in business because obviously if you're visiting all the time, you like our content, give us some money on a monthly or yearly basis and you won't ever have to see an ad again. No ad. Now, how you know, how do you think, though, things? John, that the advertisers, and I don't know if you're privy because it, we, we should probably have some kind of long disclaimer that uh, although you have written and do write for Ars Technica, you're not an Ars Technica employee. So your knowledge of the in, inner workings uh, and, and dealings may be limited. But do you know, is that something that advertisers are okay with? I mean, they're wanting to advertise to the entire Ars technical audience, for example. So offering a, a way to, you know, for, for people to get rid of that, you would almost think the advertisers wouldn't want them to do that. Yeah, I've heard. I, 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 first of all, I'll say I have no information on how advertising works at Ars Technica. I don't know if you'd call it a Chinese wall but or just complete ignorance. I have no idea how the actual mechanics of the advertising goes on on the site. I'm just talking from the perspective of customer. And I have heard that theory, like, uh, you know, sometimes you bring this up. Oh, hey, Mr. Website Owner, you know what you should do? You should let your customers pay you, and then you wouldn't show them ads. And then the website owner would say, well, you know, exactly what you said. How do you think the advertisers would feel about that? That That's that's a balance, you ha- you know, that every business has to figure out. Am I Where am I going to get most of my money from? And the, the way it balances out, I think probably the way it ends up balancing out in ours is how many people are even willing to pay me a yearly fee to not see ads? Because if it's like 0.0001%, then you just do it. Advertisers don't care because they're, you know, they're getting 99.99999% of the, of the customers are just viewing ads. And that 0.001% love you for it, right? And you get a little bit of money from it. If it was like 50% or if it flopped over the other direction, then advertisers could be pissy. But the important thing to remember is that the business of Ars Technica is providing content for customers. And if it turns out that everybody who reads Ars Technica would much rather pay you, you know, some uh, amount of money per month or per year to never have to see ads, and that supports your business to the same amount the advertisers did, then Ars Technica would probably in a second say, all right, fine, well, that's our new business. Like, Ars Technica is, uh, is not beholden to the advertisers as a, you know, responsibility of like, oh, well, we have to keep advertisers in business, you know. That's not that's not what it is. They they have to provide. They want to provide good content and pay their writers and pay for the pay for the content they provide. And whatever the best way they can do that, uh, they're going to do that. Right. And so I think that I mean the uncomfortable point is where you're in the middle. It's like well half our customers would pay us, and uh, but the other half want to see ads. But now the advertisers are pissed because their patrons are getting cut in half. And like it's it's an uncomfortable balance there. And you have to figure out what business model is going to work. But notice in no point in this discussion am I saying the real solution is for a third party company to come in and provide the solution that you're not providing and take a cut of your money and hopefully you can still stay in business with the little trickle of money they give you, you know? Like, for example, how many people would even want to give readability any money? 
I just, I don't think you have to give the money, but do you have to give the money or whatever it is? Like is the pound of money you get like one 18th of the 18 websites that this person looked at and they gave readability $10 a month or something like that. So you get some kind of fraction of that. Does that help you at all? Like that's probably a drop in the bucket compared to advertising. That's probably the reason that advertising is still so prevalent because the advertisers are willing to pay a lot more than the customers are. And that's something that the consumers have to deal with because it's like, well, if you're not willing to pay for this content more than the ever, it's like a bidding war. Who's going to, you know, every, you know, the customers want the content, the producers want to produce it and they want to make money. Who's going to pay them more? If the advertisers are out bidding you as a customer, then you only really have yourself to blame for having to look at ads. Uh, because, you know, well, the advertisers are willing to pay tons and tons of money and you can't tell the, the companies producing the content, well, you should be principled and not take money from the advertisers because then there would be no content. Like you have to have a business, right? Uh, and so it's tough being outside of the norm in, in that regard. Like I, there are companies that do make, you know, like a Cook's Illustrated. I think Kill Screen is like, does Kill Screen have ads? You don't know what Kill Screen is. Maybe someone in the chat room will tell me. But Cook's Illustrated, for example, is a cooking magazine that has no ads and they get all their money from the customers. But it's really expensive. Uh, and that's the kind of business they decided they want for themselves. But it's never going to be a mass market business because most people will accept, accept something free with ads. Like, uh, you know, Google, <laughs> for example, that's their whole business model. It's free, but you get to have ads with it. And I myself make that trade off. I don't mind that. I'd much rather have free Gmail with ads than not. That's my personal position on it, but that's most people's position, I think. And so that's the business model that Google goes with. I think we went off on a, and you get another tangent there, but I'm, I, I do get worked up about this topic a little bit. And, and I, the final thing I'll say is like the ad blockers versus the sites, that adversarial relationship and that tension, what I would hope is that it would lead everyone together to come to some sort of better arrangement in which people still get paid, the content still exists, and everybody is happier. Like, I wanted this to evolve towards that. And I, sometimes I can see on both sides of it. Sometimes I like the fact that you can block ads because it's like a technological freedom, go-go kind of thing. Uh, but also on the other side, I like the idea that like content owners have to say, look, we have to make money somehow or there's going to be nothing for you to read. So I like, I like that tension there and I hope it brings us to better solutions and fewer middlemen, or at least better middlemen, not not additional middlemen. What do what do you do personally? Care to share? I don't block ads in. Uh, well, I, when I use Firefox, I used to have the ad blocker turned on, but I would whitelist the sites I really cared about, so that I could go to some crappy site when I'm just randomly googling stuff. Uh, but now that I don't use Firefox anymore, I did, I never blocked ads in Safari, which was always my main browser. And Chrome, do I have anything on there? I'm pretty sure I don't block ads anywhere. I block Flash, uh, and have always blocked Flash in Safari. But Google is my Flash browser. So no, I've, I've not been big on the ad blocking. And even when I did, I always whitelisted the sites I want, I liked. Because I'm truthfully, I'm not that bothered by ads. Where I'm bothered by ads are the sites that you just never, no one would ever want to go to. They're just, you know, you know what I'm talking about. The crazy sites with tons and tons of ads. I don't want to see them at all. So that's why in Firefox, I have the ad blocking on with the whitelisting. But when you turn off Flash, those crazy sites suddenly, you know, currently we're in a period where those crazy sites are not as evil. As they uh, as they used to be. So if you simply by turning off Flash and not having any kind of ad blocking, uh, and blocking pop-up windows, obviously, which browsers didn't didn't create. That's that's the other interesting issue on this is the what would happen if all web browsers came out of the box with ad blocking turned on? Like what would that do to the web ecosystem? Because there's a lot of power if Microsoft, you know, if all those companies independently decided to do this at the same time, like they did basically with pop-up blocking. Like I don't think there was some sort of big meeting in a smoke-filled room where they all decided to put pop-up blockers on their web browsers. They just all independently came to that decision. Like, you know what? Pop-up ads, F that. <laughs> you know, so no pop-up. Sorry, guys. And all it had to, the web ecosystem had to change. They had to get sneakier and make things that pop when you click on stuff or whatever. But programmatically, they could prevent pop-ups. And I think pretty much every browser does it out of the box. Well, what if out of the box, all browsers blocked ads? 
there's no reason that all these companies couldn't do that. It's technologically within their means. It's legally within their means. But boy, would that reshape the entire ecosystem. Maybe that's the only way we could ever possibly get into a relationship where we pay for content directly on the web is if, if every web browser blocked ads. Because like, what are you going to do then? Make another popular web browser that's going to be more popular than IE, Chrome, and, and Firefox? Good luck with that. It's not easy. Uh, so I, I'm fascinated by the power that these technology companies hold. But so far, that hasn't happened. So far, pop-ups blocked, but ads not blocked. And, you know, that's, we're all just, it, it could happen any day, but so far hasn't. Now I think I'm really done. Believe it or not, that started off as readability. Like you're done, like that's just one topic or you're done with the show? Like you're, you're done. You're I'm done with on. that. We still have a Will Shipley's thing. <laughs> Stop little Shipley thing. I think that's a good topic. Should we do should we do our, our third sponsor now or do you want to make people wait for it? You should do the third sponsor now and then we'll do the Will Shipley stuff. The third sponsor is Shopify.com. I love I love it when there are three sponsors, or forget however many. I love it when the sponsors are all sponsors that I u- I use their stuff all the time. I use their stuff pretty much daily. I've had great experience with it, and that's the story with Shopify. Every time that we've sold T-shirts here and for the years and years before it with HiveLogic and, and pretty much anywhere that I've ever had to do any kind of online store, I was selling stuff. Uh, I've always used Shopify. I've tried other places. You know, you want to give people a chance, but they, it never gets close to Shopify as far as how easy it is to use. And they just did something very cool. They, I think they're giving 10 times, is this right? 10 times? 10 times more storage. So that you can upload tons and tons of awesome product pictures and information. And that's the thing. They make it so easy to create your store. You have something that you want to sell. doesn't matter what it is. The Angry Birds guys, this is they use Shopify for their stuff, all their merchandise. That's a pretty big deal. And there's a whole gallery of stuff that you can do here. Tons and tons of examples. It's very affordable. And they have some of the best features around. They make running the store really easy. You can forget designing it. Let's just move past that because I talk about that enough. What about running it? What about making sure that uh, that the SEO is in place so that people can find your store? All of this stuff is built in. It's all built in. You can, Of course, you can customize it the way that you want, but that's not even the big part of it. Once your site's designed, you're done. You're moving on to the next thing. The, the uh, A List Apart guys, they sell all of their books through this stuff. Then you go in and you look at that Dodo case. I, like, I just like saying Dodo case. They sell everything through this stuff. And these stores look nothing alike. The, uh, the Tatley, those uh, cool designer-inspired tattoos from the, the Swiss Miss uh, folks, they're through this. This is the place to go. Shopify.com, but you have to go to this special URL. Shopify.com slash 5x5. Apparently, they told me that the coupon got out in the, the wild. The Retail Me Not guys got it. I don't know what happened. So they said, please send people here. Well, what do you get? You get three months free. If you go to Shopify.com slash 5 by 5 three months free to build your store and start selling stuff without paying anything. Please go check those guys out. Great service. Talk about a middleman. They're doing it the right way. Who is the two stories? That, the, the, the Book Apart stores and what was the other a one? A Book Apart is there. You go to a Book Apart. Uh, Dodo Case. Yeah, see, I, w- I had no Penny idea. Penny Arcade. That, you, you, I had no idea that either one of those things used Shopify. They should advertise that more. And I guess that's the point of the service is that it doesn't look like a generic, like, oh, I can tell this not is a Shopify all. store. It looks like a professional store that I had no idea they were even using a third-party service to right sell stuff because I've been to both of those stores. I bet you've Penny, been to the, the Penny Arcade store, yeah, too. I, I certainly have. I've given them a lot of my money. I'm so that's, at a, that's Shopify. Shop. I'm staring at a shelf full of their books. 
That's Shopify, man. Yeah. Didn't even know you're using them. Did not. Those are some those are A-list though. A-list. That's right. All right. Will Shipley. Will Shipley is the uh proprietor, owner, programmer, raconteur of Delicious Monster Software, the best-known product is Delicious Library, which is a software thing to catalog all of your uh, media, your games, your DVDs, your music, and a really cool-looking interface that has wooden bookshelves that has been copied by everybody under the sun. Including Apple. Yes. This is a very very old application. It's like six years old or whatever, but this is what he's known for. Uh, And he occasionally blogs about the problems he sees in the Mac development ecosystem or the iOS development ecosystem because he did have an iOS app at various times. Uh, And his most recent one was about the problems with the Mac App Store, specifically the lack of paid upgrades. Very, very succinct title. What was the title of this thing? Let's scroll to the top here. The Mac App Store needs paid upgrades. Right to the point. Right to the point. And so in the past, he's ranted on various topics. I think the most recent one that people remember is where he talked about how uh, third-party developers should be able to have some sort of ID that is recognized by Apple that gives them, uh, you know, privileges to run their software that aren't afforded to people who have absolutely no relationship with Apple. So you'd register with Apple and say, hey, I'm a developer. You have my information. I'm not trying to scam people. I'm a trusted person. If there's a problem, you can, you know, legally get back to me. You know who I am, what I am. Uh, Give me some extra abilities in that. And this has to do with sandboxing where, like, uh, Apple's slowly ratcheting down the, the... operating system to not run untrusted application and will shipley said well you should let developers become trusted by simply signing up with you and then sure enough apple has instituted this developer id program people are like oh man like will shipley did this blog and he said they should do this thing and then you know six months or a year later they did this thing it looks a lot like what he said you know the gatekeeper thing that we talked about on the mountain lion episode uh so when he speaks now people listen i mean he's a long time he was a Next developer originally, and then he became a Mac OS X developer when Next became Mac OS X. And so he's sort of the old man of the development platform, and he has lots of friends at Apple. And whether or not they did that because they listened to him, or he blogged it because he knew that it's what they were doing, or it was completely independent, you know, whatever. It, from the outside, it appears as if uh, the things he said you should pay attention to. But mostly, I think the things he says you should pay attention to, regardless of whether Apple does them or not, because they mostly make sense. And he doesn't blog every day about something. He just, you know, once in a blue moon, he'll write something up. And I think it's worth listening to because he has vast experience in, in, in this area, kind of on both sides because of all the friends he has at Apple and has experience with Next. Uh, and he, he knows what he's talking about. And it's pretty logical. So here he is asking for paid upgrades in the Mac App Store. Uh, for the people who don't know, who haven't done a lot of buying in the Mac App Store, when you buy a software product there, you pay some money, 70% goes to the developer, 30% goes for Apple, and you get this product. If you if that developer ever wants to get any more money from you, they have uh, one of two ways to do it. I, I don't even know if this is relevant to the Mac App Store, but it's a regular App Store. They can do in-app purchase. Do you know if in-app purchase is available in the Mac App Store? Oh, that's a great question. I, I have no clue at all. I think I think it's still not. But this is like Apple's model with the iOS App Store. Is like you, you could sell like additional. The, the canonical example is you can sell additional levels for a game. So you buy a game, you pay a certain amount, you play the levels, and hey, if you want some more levels, you can inside the application say, well, we have fifty more extra levels for you. You want to pay two bucks for them? You can get them. Uh, if that's not if it doesn't exist in the Mac App Store, I should have looked this up. Uh, uh, that's one way you could possibly get more money because they do that in the iOS app store. And you can imagine, well, if that Apple allows it in the iOS app store, why wouldn't they allow it in the Mac app store? So if you can't already do it, I think it's still within the realm of, you can imagine Apple doing this. Uh, or you can buy a different product. And this becomes a problem, not on day one when everyone's apps go into the Mac app store, but 
on like year three where, okay, so you bought my cool product in the Mac App Store. Let's say you brought BB Edit, which is available in the Mac App Store. Uh, and three years later, a major new version of BB Edit comes out. The company making BB Edit has, has a choice. If they release it as just the next updated version of BB Edit, if you already bought the original one, you don't have to pay again. You just get the updated version the same way you've been getting updated bug fixes. You know, everyone's okay with that. Like, okay, so you bought BB Edit and like, you know, uh, version, you know, 11.2.1, 11.2.2. I'm just making up these version numbers. But like when you do the minor revision to that last number and the version number, oh, I fixed a few bugs with this or it supports some new device. So that's no big deal. But when you make the major new version that's got like a totally redesigned interface or a bunch of significant new features or whatever, the tradition in Mac software before the App Store was that, yeah, you have to pay for that. You have, to, you have to give us money again. Because yeah, I know you have Photoshop CS4, but CS5 is out. And oh, I know you have Photoshop CS5, but CS6 is coming out. You don't get CS6 for free because you bought Photoshop 2.0 in, in you know, 1989 or whatever. It, you pay for the major upgrades. Now, what companies tend to do is like, look, we know you bought Photoshop uh, CS, but CS2 is out. And I know you paid like 200 bucks for CS. Well, if you already own CS, well, you can get an upgrade to CS2 for 50 bucks instead of 100. Again, I'm making up numbers. You give a discount to the people who have the past major version of your software. So that's pretty much always been the model. Bug fixes are free. Minor little tweaks are free to keep your software working. But when we make a major new version, however we decide to do that, we increase the number at the end of the name. We, we put CS on instead of calling it Photoshop 8 or 7 or whatever number CS was. Uh, but we want more money from you. If you're a new customer, you pay full price. But if you're an existing customer, to get you to continue along the upgrade cycle, we'll say, okay, once you get on the Photoshop train, if as long as you buy every new version we come out with them, we'll give you an upgrade price. Now, if you've got CS and you want to get CS4, there may or may not be any kind of discount for you because you've just waited too long. Well, the Mac App Store doesn't let you do any of that. It doesn't let you say this product is 10 bucks, except for if they bought version one of this product. Uh, and if you put both of them up, you put, you know, maybe it's a bad example, but you put, you know, my cool text editor version one up, and then you come out with major version two. If you call it a different name, my cool text editor two, now you got both of them on the store at the same time. And that's confusing because someone does a cool search for my cool text editor. It's like, no, no, don't buy the old version. I have the new one out. Well, then you say, well, why don't you just pull the old one off? Well, if you pull the old one off, you can't give bug fixes to the people who bought it to, you know, back in version one. And you want to keep supporting them. You don't want like, you're forcing me to upgrade to version two because like the new version of the operating system came out and you're, you know, the version one doesn't run on it. And you know, all you had to do was tweak one little thing like to, you know, get compatibility with the new version of the operating system. But you can't release that to them in any possible way. Like you have, first of all, you have no idea who bought it. So you can't have people coming to your website and saying, oh, I totally bought version one. Can I have the bug fix upgrade? And that's just a bad experience anyway. You want them to just go to the Mac app store. But you have no idea who bought version one. You have no nothing about the customer. Uh, and the, the Mac App Store provides no facility for indicating that to that to you in any way. So you're stuck with a situation where you either never get money for a product ever again, or you do what Tweety did, put a new version of the product up, call it version 2, and remove the old version to avoid confusion. But then the people who bought version 1 are pissed off because they're no longer getting any bug fix upgrades. And you can't give them free bug fix upgrades from your website because Apple frowns on you distributing, you know, you can't. You can't distribute a bug fix to a Mac App Store distributed application because you can't sign it the way Apple does. And you can't, certainly can't have a business relationship to say, oh, psst, psst, hey, if you bought version one in the Mac App Store, come to our website and we'll give you a discount if you buy it through us. Apple does not like that. They want to control the experience. They don't want you going off to some other little website and doing stuff like that. Uh, and so Will Shipley's point in this blog showing numbers from his business, well, not numbers, but at least bar graphs with no numbers on the Y axis, is saying upgrades are such an important part of our revenue we can't stay in business if we can only get money once. 
for a program. Like it motivates us never to make a major new version of a program. What it motivates you to do is make a small, simple program that you can develop in a short period of time, provide the minimum bug fix upgrades you need to provide, and then never touch it again. And that is not going to produce something like Photoshop, where like every year or every two years or whatever, they make major new versions. And they need to have money for those major versions, but they don't want to charge everybody the big high price. They want to give up, you know, people upgrade price and then new customers get this different price. And he lays out how important this monetary stream is to his business and says, Apple, we really need a way for us to say, here is a new version of this product. Here's its relationship to this past version of the product. We don't want people to see the old version anymore. We just want new customers to buy the new one. But we do want to be able to provide bug fix upgrades. Basically, all the things that they could do when they had a direct relationship to their customer uh, that they can't do now. And, you know, even with the retail days, back in the retail days, you could still like, oh, I bought a retail copy of Photoshop. It's like you'd send in the proof of purchase or your serial number or some other type of thing where you would prove that I have, uh, you know, Photoshop 6 and then I'll get an upgrade to Photoshop 7 for a cheaper price or whatever. Uh, so this blog post has caused a pretty significant amount of controversy because I, the main reason I think that, that people are cranky about it is that from a customer's perspective, some people just think they should never, ever have to pay again for software once they pay for it. This boggles my mind, but then I think about it and it's like, well, if you don't know anything about how software is made and you just think it's magic or you don't never think about it, then maybe that's understandable. Maybe you say, look, I paid for Photoshop. Why should I have to pay for Photoshop again? Even if it's a discounted price, uh, you know, the, the I had one person write in to say that the uh, the the Mac, uh, you know, the Apple App Store model is you buy the thing once and you own it and you never have to pay for it again, and that's the model they're doing. And then if you try to do anything that you're breaking the model, I, I don't think that's the model that Apple. That may be the model that's in their mind, and that's probably a bad thing that's in their mind. But I don't think that's the model that Apple is promoting, uh, because Apple doesn't stop you from putting up version two on the Mac App Store and yanking version one and making your customers cranky. You can make money from them again. Uh, but what Will Shipley is asking for is all the tools they had at their disposal before the Mac App Store to make everybody happy and to continue to make money so they can make a better products. So they're not demotivated from making big, complicated products and then making major new revisions of them. Now, where I come at this from is I'm trying to think about, and I, you know, these issues that you talked about, I've noticed, most people have noticed in the Mac App Store, he made it an impassioned plea with, with graphs of why Apple needs to allow upgrades. My question is, why doesn't Apple allow upgrades in the Mac App Store. What at this point you can't say, oh well, the Mac App Store just came out and they didn't have time, but upgrades are surely coming. Or trials for that matter. Download the trial version of the application. That's a separate issue. I don't want to money this, but just just paid upgrades. Why doesn't Apple provide paid upgrades in the Mac App Store? Because I think answering that question will illuminate the issue more than simply saying, Oh, we used to have this business model and now it doesn't work, or the customer saying, I used to have to pay for every major version, but now I get to pay once and it's awesome for me. Those are the two ends of the spectrum there. But there's Apple in the middle making the decision to not have paid upgrades. Why? Do you have any theories on why Apple doesn't allow paid upgrades? It's something I've actually wondered about a lot. And every time that I come up with a reason that I think might qualify it, I, I'm not sure. It, it it's related very closely to the to the whole demo issue to begin, which we've talked about, I think, here before. These are the two myth, the great mysteries. What's your thinking on it? I've been trying to figure it out too, and I like you. Like I have theories. I'm like, oh, maybe they want to do, it. but no, it doesn't make any sense. But maybe you know, I, I still don't have a really hard answer for it. But I think that's this is the important question at this point. At this point, how many years after the Mac Store App Store has been around? It's not because like 
they didn't get to it yet or like it's like copy and paste and they just want to make sure they do it right like it's not rocket science they've had time to do it if it was a big priority and they said oh yeah we're totally gonna have paid upgrades we just don't have time now same thing with trials right oh we don't have the technology we can't figure out how to do trials like that could you know that they have the ability to do both trials and paid upgrades so there someone is deciding not to do these things despite obviously they get an earful from the developers about it and i bet customers don't aren't lobbying the other side but maybe they think they might be upset by it uh, and what it's doing is it's changing the shape of the market. Uh, and the way the way their decision is changing, this is what's trying to make me think, like, is this what they're going for? Is the idea that companies having to deal with this and with what I assume complete silence from Apple, like I'm assuming Apple's not talking to other developers about their reasoning either, is saying, look, we as a software development company realize that Apple is making a decision here not to have paid upgrades. We have to adjust our business to account for this. We can argue all day about what we think they should or shouldn't do or why they're doing it, but we have to adjust our business. And the way they adjust their business is trying, I'm trying to think, is that the effect that Apple is going for? Is Apple thinking, look, if we hold the line on this and we say no trials and no paid upgrades, will do we think that will reshape the software business into the shape that we, Apple, want it to be? So that's that's one of my theories. And uh, the, the, thing that, the thing that this does to software developers is it makes them do applications that don't take a really long time to develop that are kind of like fun and like a quick dose uh, but that don't like you're not entering into like this long term relationship with an application, uh, like where you buy Microsoft Word and then there's the next version and the next version every year you get a new version of Microsoft Word and you pay an upgrade price for it or whatever. Uh, it makes you instead say, I've gotten a cool idea for an application, it's the word processor, make that word processor, do a few bugs fix for it, but then your next project say, I've gotten the idea for an application, it's like a shoebox type act where you keep track of all your stuff. Like, you know, don't go back and say, okay, now our word process is successful. Our whole company is going to be about that. We're WordPerfect Inc. And we're going to make the next version of WordPerfect and the next version of WordPerfect. That was definitely the old software model. Like you had to hit a software product, you know, Lotus 1, 2, 3, Microsoft Excel, Photoshop, any of these things. You made, ver- it's like the Hollywood sequels. You made the sequel and the next version and the next version. You made it better and better. But if you can't get any upgrade revenue, your next move after making the awesomely successful, you know, Photoshop, this photo editing application is like, how about we make something to like edit video and you try that one. But then like, if you can't get any money again, you don't iterate on these products. This sounds bad to anyone who's lived through, because we, we all like our new version. Imagine if we were stuck with Photoshop 1.0. And so we got Photoshop CS6, which is like way better than Photoshop 1.0. If Adobe could never get any upgrade revenue from us, would they have progressed from 1.0 to 6? Would they have just made a new version every single time and dealt with that confusion? We know Apple doesn't want confusion. So I, I think Apple is not doing this to say, well, we just think you should have put up Photoshop CS4 in the store and then put up Photoshop CS5. Never mind that Adobe isn't even in the store, but except for in, you know, Photoshop for iPad and stuff and put up Photoshop CS6 and just, you know, we'll with searching and customers will lead them to the right thing because God forbid you have someone accidentally buy Photoshop CS4 and you're like, no, no, you shouldn't have bought that one. It's not the latest one. You should have bought CS6 and then they're all cranky and then Apple doesn't take returns. Like Apple does not like confusion. So I can't think that Apple is saying no paid upgrades. And the reason we do that is you should just put the second version on the store. If they're thinking that they're totally wrong, but I don't think they're thinking that because they are, they are against confusion in the store. They want you to just find that product. Uh, we all like iteration on a product, but there is a dark side to that that maybe Apple sees and is trying to move away from is that once you build a company around a successful product, like you make Microsoft Word or Word Perfect or whatever, and your whole company becomes about, you know, iterating on that, that by the time you're in Microsoft Word version umpteen thousand, You've added every button in the universe to the toolbar, and it's like we can't think of any more features to add, and the thing becomes like a big bloated parody of itself. And that's because your entire business is based on iterating, and every year you need a major new version because that's how you make your money. And Apple may view that as, 
oh, you know, we don't we don't like we don't want a business to become stagnant and just be like come like a one product company because they can always survive an upgrade revenue because it produces in the end sort of products that are stagnant and ossified and just creaky and like an old house with too much stuff added to it. So that's kind of in the back of my mind. The other thing uh, that's in the back of my mind is look at Apple itself, which is also a software vendor who also used to get upgrade revenue from things like Final Cut and the other products that it has either acquired or developed in-house. Not so much iLife because that comes with your Mac, but they used to sell that too. Look what they did for things like Aperture and Final Cut. They put them into the store where they know they're not getting upgrade revenue, right? And they massively lowered the price. I forget it was. Like Final Cut used to be like 200 bucks or something. Now it's like 80 And uh, Aperture made a similar price cut. Like big, big, big price cuts all the way down. And so that's my the next thing I'm thinking is like, oh, maybe this is what they want. Maybe they're trying to reshape the market so that the new price is the same as the upgrade price simply because, you know, it used to be like buy new 100 bucks, upgrade price 20 bucks. Well, how about just make it 20 bucks all the time? Like, we want more people to buy software and to be more accessible, and they, and they assume they'll make it up in volume. So they say, just because you can't get upgrade software pricing, sell your thing for a much cheaper price so that more people buy it, and when the new version comes out, get new customers to buy it. And no, you're never going to get another cent of revenue from the guy who bought the first version if you just keep iterating on your product, but you're just supposed to be going after new customers. So maybe they envision a world in which, kind of like the iOS world, where like apps, not 99 cents, but apps are way cheaper, so cheap that Upgrade versus first purchase price makes no sense. Like, well, 99 cents for first purchases, but if you're upgrading, it's 42 cents. I mean, it gets, it gets silly at that point, you know? So they're kind of, Apple is kind of speaking with its own products there, putting its uh, money where its mouth is and say, we're going to take our formerly triple digit price pro products, cut them down to double digit prices and sell them that way. And we could have made much more money maybe, you know, per each purchase, but we think we're going to make it up in volume or whatever. Uh, the other theory goes that as soon as Apple needs to put out a major new version of Final Cut on the Mac App Store, that's when upgrade pricing will suddenly come into existence. Mm. And then, oh, suddenly Final Cut Pro, if you bought Final Cut Pro X or 10 or however you pronounce it, if you want Final Cut Pro XI or 11 or whatever they call it, uh, you know, now you have to give us more money. Or they leave both in the store or whatever. Uh, and, and I think the, the final theory is it's never a good idea to rule out incompetence. It couldn't be that they're just, it's a blunder and that hasn't been caught or maybe there's someone in a position of power who has wrongheaded thinking about it and no one can convince them and they don't want to fire him because he does a good job in other regards. Like, it's it could be that they just, you know, it's an internal debate that so far has gone away and away and it could go the other. Uh, I, but I think there is a problem here and I don't like, I don't like the mystery surrounding it. I don't like not knowing what what it is that Apple thinks it's doing with the strategy. Are they just fumbling the ball do they want to reshape the the, the the market to be more like the iOS market because I think that's better for consumers and better for Apple? I think that's all in the mix. I think they do like the idea of software prices going down, volumes going up, uh, making software easier to buy. But I think they also recognize that if we want people to make these great products, we need to allow we need to allow them to stay in business. Like for example, Adobe does not put Photoshop in the Mac App Store. Does Apple see that as a plus or a minus? Do they say we want all customers to go through the Mac App Store except for quote-unquote professional customers and they know how to buy directly from Adobe or from a retailer? Maybe maybe they're okay with that. Maybe they say for most applications you you go through the App Store, but for uh, you know serious business applications used by a small volume of people, yeah, you pay through the nose for it, buy directly from them, get upgrade pricing. We're not in that business. We're in the mass market business. That's the closest I can come to, to getting into their mindset to say, what, what the heck is Apple doing here? But I still think that leaves, even in the mass market, people who are making the, you know, the text editors in the App Store or the, you know, the library applications where you catalog your stuff. Those are mass market consumer things that everybody can use. But 
those people, you know, they're, they're telling you that there's not, they don't see any way out with their business model without that upgrade revenue. Because if they go with the lower price for everybody, they don't think they can make it up in volumes. Maybe they can, maybe they haven't tried. That's, that's a typical reply to Shipley's thing is, yep, that's the way you used to do business, but you have to learn a new way to do business. And if you did X, Y, and Z within the Apple model, we, uh, we think that you would make as much or more money. Sometimes that's true, sometimes it's not, but it's still scary and it's a natural reaction for those people to say, if you would just give us upgrades, then we wouldn't have to do that scary experiment where we drop our prices and see if we can make it up in volume, you know? So it's not really a conclusion to this Shipley thing. Yeah. Uh, my, my, only, my only one point in it is just that I, th- I, I think the mystery surrounding what Apple thinks it's doing is the thorn in all of our sides. It drives developers crazy. Uh, consumers like don't want to know what Apple is thinking, but it affects them because the, the software products they buy are made by these companies who can't figure it out. And, and I can't figure it out. I can't figure out what it is that they think they're doing. I can see all the effects of it and I can see upsides and downsides to those effects, but there's no clear vision. You know, there's no Steve Jobs up on stage and saying, people ask for upgrade pricing, but we think upgrade pricing sucks because X, Y, and Z. Sometimes he does that. You know, sometimes when there was a single voice of the company, they would express their corporate point of view. But so far on the upgrades, the closest I've seen is statements that have led me to believe they like the idea of software prices going down, app purchases becoming more numerous at lower prices because that's better for consumers and they want to broaden the base. But I, I still think there are problems with that strategy. So we'll see. Will, will Shipley's uh, soothsaying lead to more changes that are that seem to be directly related to his blog post? Will we see upgrade pri- pricing, trials, all that stuff? I don't know. You know, for, for Apple to provide the complete experience, we will have to see these things in time. We, they will they will have to emerge. They will have to come here. We we have to have demos. We have to have in-app purchase. Well, in-app purchase, by the way, it seems like it is. Um, in the Mac App Store? Yeah, it seems like it is. Right. And we certainly will need to see upgrade. For all of these things will eventually mature. And I I really do believe that Apple does have a reason it may be that we'll ne- i would suspect we'll never know the reason and i think your theory that as soon as they need it it will it will suddenly be there and at some point after that other people will be able to take advantage of it i hope people aren't waiting for that because apple i don't know if you know but they have a hundred billion dollars <laughs> so they're not really sweating that upgrade revenue from final cut pro i'm yeah. sorry to tell you they have a hundred billion dollars so I hope people aren't waiting for Apple to quote unquote need it. It yeah. cost a pretty long while on a hundred billion. And if you've looked at the percentage of their revenue that comes from software products, it is really, really small. Yeah. So, but yeah. So, but I don't know what the politics inside the company are, but I, I do think about that. I'm like, are these things inevitable? Do we just think they're inevitable because that's what we've always had? There are many other examples. Like, oh, Apple inevitably had a hardware keyboard. I think people have mostly come to terms with that at this point, right? That the iPhone's not going to spread a hardware keyboard anytime soon. It's not, they're not going to get to it eventually. They're not saving it. Remember when that, like the iPhone 3G came out and like, I bet it'll have a hardware keyboard option, you know? And those of us who knew Apple were like, no, you don't know what's right. going, no. you don't know what's going on. There. But in this case, even those of us who feel like we know the company are still like, why not upgrades Apple? Like I kind of see what you want to do there with like not having to deal with that. And it's better to just have one low price for everybody and it's better for consumers. But, but you see the problem, like, you know, it's, it's a business model problem. And like, it's, we've been running this experiment and it's getting down to the wire and maybe Apple's just going to not, not blink and say, uh, we think you can get by without the upgrade revenue. Try just lowering your price. And that's, a, that's an interesting experiment to run. 
sort of on your developers because if it turns out to be wrong, it's like, oh, well, delicious library went out of business or they become a Windows mobile developer or whatever, you know. Right. Oh, that, that experiment didn't work out, you know. Or like, you know, can we get Adobe into the Mac App Store because 30% of 600 bucks for the Studio CS, whatever the hell they call it, that's not bad money there. Uh, or is Adobe never going to come in no matter what we do? So we shouldn't even bother courting them and let them sell to the pros independently. Or we prefer Adobe to simply make Photoshop for iOS like they have with that. You know, they have a, an iOS version of a drawing app. And we think that's what software should look like in the future and not like that old creaking beast Photoshop. There's so many plausible mindsets I can get into for Apple, but none of them like like clear like the car, the hardware keyboard. No, Apple has a point of view, no hardware keyboard. It's clearly expressed by their actions, if not necessarily their words. It's not going to come anytime soon. You know, it's uncertainty, uncertainty about this. So I don't know. I would say this is something to watch for at WWDC and, and future. Are you going to WWDC this year? Is anybody going to WWDC this year? Is there a WWDC this year? I, because as far as I can tell, t- tickets still aren't for sale. Well, yeah. but they, they always get announced. Uh, it'll be in huh. June or July, like it always you, is. You think so? You I don't? Because you should, oh, I had no idea this was a topic. Uh, no, I'm just being cranky about the fact that they haven't put tickets on sale. <laughs> I'm assuming they're going to put them on sale, but it's like it would be nice if we had more notice than like a week or something. Yeah. I, so so what you're saying is if if they are announced, which of course they will be, and uh, and it takes place, which of course it will, then will you be going? If I can get a ticket, yes, I'm going to try to go again this year. If you don't uh, get a ticket, I will be very sad. Will you still and, go? And panicky. No, no, I won't go without a ticket. How am I going to like I I'm there. I know there's other people there for like socializing and to like, you know, hang out, but I I need to actually go to the sessions cuz the WRC is a tremendous help to me in writing my macOS 10 reviews. And this didn't used to be a big deal because WRC would happen and then you'd wait and then videos would come out and then I could look at those videos. I didn't have to actually go there and then I would do my review. But their release schedule with the last two releases has been, or just the last one release, has been such that, like, WWC happens, and then the OS comes out shortly thereafter. And if I had not gone, I would never have had time, sometimes, to even get the videos, or if even I could get the videos, I wouldn't have had a week to watch them all and then write my review, you know what I mean? So, now, with these summer releases that are supposed to be yearly and summer WWDC, it's always down to the wire. So, I need to be there to get that information at the sessions as soon as possible, not wait for videos to come out, not, you know, and even if it's just down to like taking the week off of work to go to WRC, that means I have a week to sit there and listen to this information and absorb it. Where am I going to get that week from otherwise, right? So it's the release date of Mac OS X and the fact that I write these big reviews about it that really has made WRC become like a mandatory thing for me. And if I can't go, it's going to be problems. <laughs> going to be problems. And speaking of not being able to get a ticket, people were speculating about this. There's a service called WRC Alerts that will send a text to your phone as soon as tickets go on sale so you don't miss it. And someone was speculating on Twitter, you know, I wonder how many people have signed up for WWC alerts versus how many tickets there are actually for sale. And I think I saw someone tweet that, you know, the number of tickets for sale for WWC is, is, you know, X thousand. And the number of people who signed up for that service is almost double that. Well, we can we can see that uh, on WWDCalerts.com, which, by the way, is in the show notes. Thanks very much to HelpSpot.com, the burliest man in software development. Uh, and the best help this software around for for subsidizing and uh, making possible these these wonderful show notes. Uh, so that's in there. WWDCalerts.com. dot Two thousand five hundred ninety one people have tweeted it. 
I don't know if that means that, of course, they've signed up for it, but. I think more. I think the sign up number was like they said, like 8,000 or something. People are 5,000 or 8,000. I should have favorited the tweet. But, but what if those people are, you know, when they get the text, they're in the car. They, they or, don't buy it. They don't buy it. Yeah. But the, the, even so, that's scary that there are, there are already more people who are so scared that they're going to miss the, the for sale time for the tickets that they've signed up to be text about it. There's not even enough tickets to just those people. How much are you, tickets going to be this year? I don't know. They were like last year, like 1600 bucks or something, which is not cheap. Uh, and I suspect they will be similar price. You know, you should tell Apple, you know, you'd get more people to come to WC if you did it for $10 a ticket. <laughs> you just needed to rent out like a football stadium or something. They, they already need to rent out a football stadium. Yeah. Well, Moscone's not that big. Like I just came from the Boston, whatever it's called, Boston Expo Convention Center. It's Where the, PAX is held. Yes. It's the biggest convention center I've ever been in. And it's, it's pretty damn big. If you held WWC there, you could have 60,000 people at WWC, uh, probably. But Hey, they, they do fine here in Austin with South By, and, you know, Apple is opening up that big uh, big place out here in Austin. Maybe they're going to move it. Maybe they're going to get wise. Yeah. How big is the South By? What's the attendance at South By? Uh, uh, I was just looking at these... Um, I was just looking at these uh, numbers from, from 2011, because I don't know if they've released the 2012 numbers yet, but um, gosh, I'm going to have to dig this up for the show notes or we could do is this. It, is it over hundred K or is it like what ballpark? I th- I thought, I thought that it was. Yeah. So that's, that's even bigger than PAX. I mean, PAX is 60,000, 70,000 pushing up to that. Yeah, level. You know what? Maybe it wasn't, maybe it was 50,000. Maybe last year it was, fa- I'm seeming to remember it was 50,000, but they're spreading out, right? Those are all people all in one building. They are not in one building. Like the Gruber was complaining that he got put off in like the satellite thing. He'll take like a bus to go, you know, so that you're spreading out. But the Boston Expo Center where PAX is, that's one facility that holds 60,000 people. Uh, Apple could probably, I mean, maybe not at $1,600 a ticket. You would think the tremendous price of the tickets to WWC would be a deterrent to try to, you know, supply and demand to try to keep the demand down. So you don't have uh, too many things. Someone's in the chat room saying Moscone is huge. Moscone West is small. I've only been to one WWC, and yeah, I guess it was in the West. Yeah, that's not that big. Maybe they could have it in Moscone, but maybe they just want to keep it small. Maybe the solution is to keep cranking up the price until the tickets don't sell out in an hour. You know, uh, all I know is that I want to go, and lots of other people really want to go so much so that they want to get a text when the tickets come on sale. And did maybe you, that's, did you put your number into here? I know you don't. Oh, I totally did. Yeah. I mean, I don't even get texts, but now like I have my phone with me all the time, like sitting at my desk in front of me at work. Otherwise, it would be like buried somewhere because I just want to, you know, if I get a text, I got to gotta go, go, go. Like I was even planning, like, what if I'm in line for PAX and I get the text? Like, I, you know, I had my wife there with the iPhones. We could just go online and you know, on 3G and be able to buy tickets as fast. Ugh. It's stressful. It's upsetting. Uh, I really hope I get a ticket. And of course, my reward for getting a ticket is a six hour plane flight, which I don't enjoy at all. And a week away from my family, which I don't enjoy at all. But I do this. I do this for my for my art. <laughs> or whatever, whatever the hell you want to call it. <laughs> I haven't been for a few years, but my I, I I I feel like I should go. You don't relish it. I mean, people think, oh, don't you want to get away from your family for a week? I don't. I mean, I would rather be with my family. I don't like traveling. I don't like being away from home. I don't like being away from my family. But yeah, I got to do it, or I can't. I can't get a review out. It's any good in any amount of time. That's always a questionable, and I don't want to. And plus, it was fun last year being all those people, but. Hey, you're gonna you go go meet your fans. That's, yeah, I'm just you want you want a glad I'm, hand. That's what you're I'm, all about when you're out. I'm meeting the like people that. who I'm fans of mostly. That's the exciting part. I do love it when people 
see me, recognize me. And so is that why you had that picture of yourself saying, I, yes, I am John Syracuse walking around with that big you, sign? You would think I would. Here's the problem. Like I'm mostly stealth, like especially back in the day when I was writing my Mac West Henry, because no one, you know, they don't know what you look but like. But now you're famous. You well, can't go stealth is, anymore. Is the, we're, we're in the problem right now, Dan. The problem is this podcast because people hear the voice droning on and on for hours at a time. And then they hear me talking across the room. And I guess I have a distinctive froggy voice. And they're like, oh, I know that voice. That's that complaining guy. And now they recognize me yeah. because of the voice. If I keep my mouth shut up, pretend I'm mute. It's like I just look like every other geek, whatever, you know. Uh, but once I open my mouth, then the podcast listeners find me. Uh, and that is gratifying. But mostly I'm there to be a fanboy to the other people and find them. The, the West Coast nerds who I, I know online or know by reputation or talk with, but have never actually met. And so it's nice to meet them. But yeah, I'm actually literally really there for the sessions because I need that information and I take crazy notes and I'm paying as much attention as I can and it's kind of like going to school again. So, I hope I get tickets. We'll see how that goes. And I call that a show. Did you call that a show? Yeah, I feel like uh, we're done. Nothing else you want to add? No last minute additions? I uh, don't think so. I have, I have just sent a, out a request to the people that I know which are not many, to see if I can uh, get a lead on a date. Yeah, that's the other thing. Like, the people with the inside line, you know that, like, Dalrymple and Gruber are going to know before we all do. They're going to have their reservations booked in the hotels, and then we're going to find... But And plus, the Gruber gets the press thing, so he doesn't have to worry about getting a ticket. But us plebes, we plebes, whatever it is, we have to... (laughs) I think we, we plebes sounds better, whether it's correct or not. That's true. So, yeah, I'm still fighting it out there with everybody else trying to get a ticket. Maybe I could get you a press one, you think? I don't. Well, that comes with some responsibility to do press things. I'm not there doing press things. I'm there doing research. I can't be Well, that is a press I'm thing. Press. You're yeah. a member of the press with ours, I would argue. But without the show, you... you, you they don't even calling. send people to the sessions. They, they get press passes to the keynote. And the people, those people work. They work their butts off you know, filing stories in real time and doing the live blog and everything. But those people don't stay there the whole week and go to all the sessions. So I need to be there the whole week for the sessions. And so the ours is not getting, you know, passes to attend the entire show for the week. As far as I know, they just cover the keynote and the announcements and then hang out and throw cool parties. But that's a side thing. <laughs> all right, then, John. Have a good week. You too. Thank you.